This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is Afternoons on Dubai Eye 103.8. I'm Helen Farmer and this is your chance to catch up on the expert advice, the real life stories of some incredible guests. We were talking about screen time, something I find a little bit tricky because I know I might have a slight dependency. But what about in our children? When is an enjoyment of watching or playing somewhat problematic? We were joined by a parenting coach to explain a little bit more and how to, if not go cold turkey, but put some limitations in place. Speaking to the founder of Amal Counselling, all about affordable, accessible counselling and a 24-hour hotline as well, marking endometriosis this week with some of the symptoms that you as women need to know. And meeting a teacher turned property entrepreneur, solving the problem of safe, affordable and quality co-living for women here in Dubai. And in our psychology hour, Dr. Thiraya on hand to explain why and how you can be more likeable, whether that is on LinkedIn or in the real world. Talking screen time and maybe a little bit too much of it now. Joining us live on the line is Luthamia Thurka, CEO and founder of Positive Living UAE, certified conscious parenting coach, NLP master and clinical hypnotherapist is on hand to help us navigate the tricky world of tech. Um, Great to have you with us, Luz. How are you? Thank you, Helen. It's always a pleasure to be here and I'm very grateful that you give me this platform to share my passion, which is conscious parenting in so many levels. So thank you, Helen. Thank well, you. I'm not going to lie. I'm a little bit nervous about talking to you about this topic this afternoon, Liz, because um, <laughs> screen time is, um, well, it's a, bit of a, it's a bit of a tricky one in most parents' lives, I think, because it serves a great purpose in many ways. I certainly don't want to be demonizing yeah. it between now and half past three, but it's it's also incredibly problematic when there's too much of a so-called good thing. So I would love it if you could give us a bit of an idea about roots and causes for screen addiction and what you mean by addiction. Yeah, so let's let's talk about, like you said, the root and cause. When there is an addiction, first we need to understand there are red flags. When the child does not want to have friends, the only thing they think is to be in the iPad or on the phone or in their games. In that very moment, we need to understand that they are getting something from the device that they are not getting maybe from real life. Mm. And that's why they are going there. So there is, it becomes an addiction because they are going there for a sense of relief, from a sense maybe of success, from a sense of belonging, something that they are getting from there that they are not getting in real life. That's when it becomes an addictive behavior. That's but let's go to the root and cause. Just, just, just quickly, Liz, I wanted to get your take because when we've talked about addiction on the show before, and that can be anything from you know substances to, exactly. to gaming to gambling, mm-hmm. it always seems to come back to this sense of when there's disconnection, it leads yeah. to addiction. And I wondered if you thought that was the case in kids as well, especially with screen time. Absolutely, Helen, and I'm so proud of you. You remember our talk on that. There are four symptoms that describe an addictive behavior. Four. It gives a sense of relief, so instant gratification. Mm-hmm. In the long term, is harming the person. So in this way, disconnection from family and real world. You cannot let go on your own, yes, because you, you crave it, you want it. And the fourth and not last is craving it. You want it more and you cannot let go on your own. So you need help. So that's when it becomes an addictive behavior. I want you to think of any behavioral pattern that has these four symptoms. It's an addictive behavior. So the phone indeed and the iPads is an addictive behavior. And I would say it's one of the viruses that we need to be careful, parents. This is worse than pandemia. That's worse than coronavirus. And we have them as well as adults. Oh, so for let's sure, go to, for sure. So yes, go on, T- take us deeper down the, the rabbit hole. And, yes, I know. Let's go to the root and causes, okay? So let's not demonize the devices as well. Let's be realistic about this. First, we must, we must acknowledge that we, the parents, are one of the biggest 
contributors on these addictive behaviors. We give these devices to the kids, didn't we? We are the ones buying the TV. Now, TV, of course, now is now we have to praise TV because TV is not as, as addictive as now the portable devices are becoming. But we are the ones that are buying the games. We are the ones buying the console, the PS4, PS5. We are buying the phone. We are buying the iPad. So a part of the problem is us parents introducing the device at a very young age when the brain is not ready to have that addictive device and let's face it the industry knows what they are doing these devices are very addictive they create the dopamine reward loop it's scientific they when we have devices because of this constant and instant gratification 24 7 pictures emoticons, emojis, all these things, it becomes very addictive. So we are introducing the parents at a very young age devices to our kids. So let's admit that the root and cause at times is us. And we do that because like you say, Helen, sometimes this becomes the babysitters, you know, when we want to be left alone, give them a mobile, give them an iPad. Oh, I want to have a glass of wine, give them an iPad. Give them a phone. Yeah, yeah, go play with your device. Leave me alone. And so it's so easy and so tentative to give these portable devices to our children because it serves us, let's face it, yeah, to the parents. T- totally. I hate to agree with you because I, but I am. <laughs> I'm completely complicit in that. But I think I think that's, I don't know, I'd, I'd be curious to get my mum on the phone and wonder what she did when I was growing up when she needed to, you know, fold laundry or go to work or, you know, have yeah. that half hour. Because, um, in fact, any anyone listening who raised kids, let us know what were your kind of go-tos to buy you a little bit of time. Let me know on 4001. Um, but also there's, I think it, the, the waters are somewhat muddied now, Luz, because especially mm-hmm. when we look at COVID, you know, education, so much of that was carried out through iPads and screens and again you know this is going to be part we want our children to be to be savvy with tech a lot of the jobs are going to be doing you know they are digital natives this is this is going to be part of their job um, I think what, what we're trying to establish now is when does it become problematic and what can you do to I guess help them ease that addiction conversation now with Certified Conscious Parenting Coach, NLP Master Clinical Hypnotherapist, Luz Maria Serco. She is the CEO and founder of Positive Living UAE and we are tackling screen time. A bit of a triggering topic for all of you adults like me who get their screen time notification every week and immediately are ashamed but really focusing on the children today because this is where it all begins. And I wondered, Luz, if our behaviour as adults and our relationship with screens have an impact on how our children view technology. Absolutely. I mean, the children in the very first seven or even until I would say 10 years, they mirror our behaviour. Most of the behaviour that they will imprint in their brains is from observation rather than being told to. There is no child that is learning from words. They are taught by observation, by games. That's the language of a child. Child doesn't learn because it's been told to do something. Mm-hmm. It's more of you, the parent, embodying what you want to teach the child rather than you telling them. So if, if you want them to read, for example, to read a book rather than being in devices, since we are in the topic of devices, you must ask, when are you holding the, the book and reading or reading with your children so that they can, you know, do that, they can mirror that behavior. It's so simple, isn't it? So obvious, but yeah. but I'm now kind of racking my brains for the last time I held a book in front of my child. A Kindle, maybe, <laughs> but possibly not a book. Um, let, let's go to the text line, Liz. Um, Manoush saying, um, hi, both. My nine-year-old son loves coding using Python. So does my daughter. Um, and, and seven-year-old daughter loves to write stories on the iPad. Mm-hmm. Is an hour a day too much? They don't play games on it. I think Manoush's point, question there, really raised, raised a good one about what are we using devices for? Um, are you able to speak to that? And I don't want to say good and bad usage of, of technology, but there are certainly some more educational, productive screen time rather than passively watching YouTube kids and all the horror shows that are on that. And um, What do you think? 
Yeah, I think it's good. I mean, one hour a day, like Manush said, and I don't know what you're doing, Manush, but please tell me. I want my, my son to play codes rather than Minecraft or Fortnite, for sure. So one hour is, I would say, reasonable. And also, like I say, we need to, we need to understand when it becomes toxic. Mm -hmm. It only becomes toxic devices when it's becoming an addictive behavior. They are craving from them. They are having no friends. They prefer to be isolated on their console on the uh, on the you know the console playing games it's also when they don't want to do anything but be on the screen also when they are not motivated to do sports or any other activities or when they are having constant burst of you know anger and frustration because you are saying no to the devices so then it, then it becomes a bit toxic right this is when you have to make the boundary the limit and let's understand first what the screen is giving them there are five s's that children are getting from scream and this comes from my mentor dr shefali so i'm going to honor her this is something that she taught us in our conscious parenting co coaching and she says there are five s's that children get they are seen yes that that feeling of being seen because in the in the games in the iPads, they belong to groups, you know, Snapchat, TikTok, yeah. they have a lot of friends there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so they have this sense of belonging, they're seen there, they're important, they're significant, they get that S of seen. They have safety because in the virtual world, if you don't like a friend, and let's face it, even us as adults, if we don't want somebody in our Facebook, we just delete it, we block them. There it is, problem solved. There is a sense of anonymity. You know, nobody's going to know that if you delete somebody, you don't care. It's There is a sense of safety, whether in the real world, we have to deal with conflict resolution. Yeah, yes. Right. Then if, if you don't like somebody and you have a problem with somebody, then you have to actually talk to the person, try to resolve it. There in itself, there is a social skills that you and me, Helen, have been taught when we have problems with, with our friends or with anybody. But in the virtual world, no need. You don't like somebody, delete. That's it. The other one is success. Children get success in the virtual world. If you are playing Fortnite, and I remember my eldest son playing Fortnite, they'll be in a group of five kid, kiddos with avatars, with levels that they are going, and there is success there, instant success. Whether in the real world, we are throwing up on the cliff. We would just, you know, go there, make friends, boom. And you have to create that a skill to be able to be a winner of if you want to be good in sports, you really have to put the effort to practice right. and to be good at something. So in the real world, it doesn't work like in the virtual world. In the virtual world, it's immediate success. They are successful. The other one is soothing. Yes, if you are bored, which again, we even adults, when we are waiting in a line in a queue <laughs> and we are like, oh my God, this is taking so long. Fun. There you go, Instagram, Facebook, watching pictures. Yeah, we 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 soothe ourselves all with the devices time, all the time. So so yeah. I wanted to ask you then, if people are listening and going, okay, there's some red flags here. My child does become agitated when I say it's time to put the iPad away. You know, we've had blow-ups about trying to come to an agreement about how much, you know, social media time or gaming time is reasonable. How do you then start to put some things in place in order to make sure both parties are happy, both the child and the adult? What would the, what would the logical step be? Excellent question, Helen. Excellent question. Because you see, if the device is giving the soothing, if you want to take away that, you have to create an environment where the child is also getting those things. Mm -hmm. How am I going to be significant with my mother? So in that case, or father, parents, how can we provide that, what they are getting in the screen? So connection here plays a major role because if you want your child to feel successful with you and not get bored and not seen, you have to connect with the child. What does the child likes? What You have to have that conversation. Okay, my love, what, what is it that you want? What can we do together that I create also the sense of significant? Mm -hmm. I am seen by my parents. They understand me. They know what I like and they embrace the things that I like. There in itself is success. Success. I, I am successful. I am seen. My mother is connecting with me. My father takes me to my football match and he sees me and I'm, I am important to him. So this is how we can create that wherever the technology is given them, we need to connect to the child to know what is it that the scream is given that I'm not providing to my child. That takes time. 
that takes connection. So that is very important for us to understand as parents. We can never compete with the screen. We can never be so entertaining as the screen guys. <laughs> Challenge yes? accepted. So we need to know what we can give. Yeah. Um, I want to come to one last question before I let you go. Um, anonymous message, and I think it touches on something that a lot of parents worry about, which is um, anonymous message saying, my eldest son just turned seven and so far hasn't had access to a device of any kind. He's occasionally gone on my work laptop to print something and colour it in. Um, he loves colouring, drawing, plays for hours with Lego and Transformers. However, he's getting to an age where his friends are starting to talk about Minecraft and Switch. And I'm wondering whether he might be being left behind and left out of conversations. He's quite shy. I don't want to make life harder for, for him. If you were me, what would you do? Mm, very interesting question. How old was the child you said it was? Just turned seven. Yeah, no. Devices under 13, a very big no. <laughs> and I know it's difficult, mom. I know that you want to avoid the pain and discomfort of the child, but that's not your job to do. You will allow the child to go through that. That's the very teaching. That's the exactly thing we're talking about. If we do not train our kids or coach our kids to sit with the discomfort or the disagreement in so many ways that society is going to provide, and we're just going to make it easy for them, they are not going to be master or they are not going to be strong enough to sit with that discomfort. If their friends, they have it, fair enough. They can have conversations about other things. They can have conversations about the sports that they like. There is so many other ways your child can connect to the group without feeling being left aside. But screams under 13 years old is very dangerous because as I'm explaining you, it's, an, it's a very addictive technology. They know what they are doing and below 13, the brain is not capable to have these decision skills to stop. So believe me when I said when a child of below 13, they are not letting go of the device. They are not doing this to, to upset you, to disagree with you, parent. No, they really can't. We can't adults sometimes. We can't let go of, oh, you know, this constant algorithm. When you like something, something else appears that you like and you keep looking and more and more. It's the same for the children. Below 13, it's very difficult to take away the devices. So I would say this is very, it's a very personal thing that you need to decide. You want to let the child learn to deal with pain, emotional pain of being discomfort, in, in discomfort that he doesn't have the iPad but the friend has, you can be with that child. You can teach the child to connect in other ways to their friends. There are so many other ways he could be doing with them. Arts, you know, many other creative things, sports, many other things. Thank you, Liz. We've run out of time, unfortunately. Lots of comments and questions on this and certainly something that's a big pain point for an awful lot of parents. And um, if you want Liz's details, feel free to drop me a little message saying, parent, I will send you that link straight over. Liz Mirasek joining us there from Positive Living UAE. <laughs> Talking mental health this hour and in many cultures and families, depression, mental health issues are seen as taboo, something that we just don't talk about recently. And I swore this show would be a Prince Harry free zone, but I do feel it's relevant here. He did mention in his book how he encouraged members of his own family to seek therapy in the same way he had for depression, but they refused. However, mental health campaigners here in the Middle East say it's high time for teachers, parents and policymakers to encourage young people to open up about their feelings and break free from the shame surrounding the discussion of psychological disorders and the warning comes after two separate surveys that highlighted the scale of suffering among the region's 200 million Arab youth due to depression, anxiety and addiction and one woman who is bringing this discussion to the forefront is the CEO and founder of Amal Council. Naila Al-Nsawi is with us today an Emirati businesswoman with a Masters in Psychology. Thank you for joining us Naila, really do appreciate your time. Can we start by talking a little bit about Amal and why you felt it was necessary to, to bring this um, to our attention and of course to people who need it. What what makes a difference? Hi, thank you very Hi. much Helen. It's wonderful to be here and you, we've been trying to connect we for have, ages and I'm glad we finally went through and uh, Me too. Uh, kudos and thanks to Afra and Pretty for making this happen today. Thank you. And um, basically um, uh, AMAL was founded at the, at the dire time uh, of the COVID, June 2020 and uh, uh, basically, uh, 
uh, myself setting it up. It was probably one of the easiest things that I had to do in my life um, by setting up this foundation. It happened over a week. It happened so fast. I think good things happen really fast when Mm -hmm. they're meant to be, Mm -hmm. and it's for a good cause Mm and supporting the community. And um, proud, very proud to say that uh, from a one two person organization, we're almost 42 people, oh, hands on organization to support the community. I have a wonderful team of about 18 counselors, uh, diverse counselors from different backgrounds, different expertise uh, to be able to uh, manage cases on a broad spectrum. Uh, from uh, trauma to depression and, and so on, the list continues. And uh, again, um, uh, this cause was um, was was born because of the need at that time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I meant for it to kind of you know uh, last six months and hope <laughs> like you know it's just gonna be here. Like coming year, up to three could, years later, and then you Nella. know this is. This is how it should have been uh, long ago. My intention was to set up something like this um, in my retirement to support uh, the courts uh, and manage uh, and reduce divorce cases and work with the court authorities to promote family health and family mental health and, uh, and uh, sustaining relationships and, uh, and so on. But uh, I think all, everything has the right time to start. It does. And I've, I've read that Amal means hope which must be incredibly meaningful to you and to as you're saying the community that you're supporting here um i'd like to talk a little bit about um regional specific issues that you that you think we're we're seeing can you tell us a little bit about starting with you as an emirati woman a woman have you seen depression anxiety and, and how is it dealt with in your community growing up um, I think growing up, this uh, was not even a, a topic that um, I remember uh, was a discussion and everybody had to kind of really focus on their day-to-day, um, whether people were more ag- agile then and more resilient compared to now, I can't say, it's because life has say. just changed. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, the things that we deal with now, uh, the um, climate change, uh, the, the the relationship amongst the families, they are uh, not as consistent and not as robust that they used to be in. Um, and um, and I think, uh, you know, uh, relationships are, you know, very secondary uh, compared to how it was very primary back then. So smaller communities, I was speaking to Poonam, your uh, producer and she was mm-hmm. also telling me you know how things used to be in the past and now and uh, we have to uh, the ecosystem right now needs this mm-hmm. and, 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 and and it's important that everybody needs to understand that that we have uh, there's a place to kind of come out and it's interesting it, yeah as you say it's it's impossible to say really you know because We've got this role of social media. We've got more awareness than ever, than ever. We've got much more open conversation about mental health than than ever before. Do you still think there's some taboo? Well, it's really hard to say uh, where I'm. Uh, I'm because I've got most of the time. I've got my head down, uh, trying to help and support people. Yeah, you're I, in uh, it. Yes, I'm in it. Um, I'm. You know, I can't. I, 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 it's impossible for me to kind of step back and look at it in a in a holistic perspective, um, and. Uh, and it is what it is, and I think, um, and then the era that we're living in right now uh, just encourages and causes this, the COVID, the lack of support, uh, the problems in the society, mm-hmm. um, and, uh, and the problems in the world. Talking mental health in the Middle East and one woman at the forefront of this discussion is the CEO and founder of Amal Council. Naila al Masawi is with us today, Emirati businesswoman, masters in psychology and very much part of this community. Um, I wanted to ask you about perhaps some of the main reasons that you're, and I'm certainly not asking you to betray any client confidentiality here, but have you noticed any themes or, or trends or patterns there at Amal about what is coming through the doors, some of the reasons for depression, anxiety and more in the community? So um, I I feel like, you know, there are different pockets um, and that too of um, of age groups. Uh, UAE is highly diverse and, um, and I see um, when it comes to the youth and the Z-gens, they're, they're, they're much more aware of their... Um, 
of their their rights and uh, what should what what's the what should they be feeling and not feeling where should they g- get help from they're very vocal mm-hmm. and, and and as a, c- a community they support each other and that however when you go into into different um uh sets uh, of um uh, nationalities uh, again it it really depends uh how what is the upbringing in terms of schooling which mm-hmm. schools have they gone go, uh, they, they are in if they're in private schools or government schools and then and 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 a lot of kids we 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 see cases like um uh, they feel um the cases that come in uh, youth and and children um uh, neglect of uh, case of um, self-worthiness, mm-hmm. um, a lot of confusion. And, and, and sadly, there is lots of cases of abuse, maybe emotional abuse. There's a, there's a wide range of cases that we have had on uh, sexual abuse cases as well that we refer them to the authorities mm-hmm. and the right partners. that You've that, got that uh, safeguarding that, in place. Yeah. Um, I want to ask you about the online aspects. I feel like that's something, and you started, Amal, in COVID times when we started doing lots of Zooms and lots of Teams chats. And mm-hmm. a big focus for you, that Amal, is about being affordable and accessible. And online plays a really important part in that. Can you explain a little bit about how that works and perhaps demystify it for anyone that hasn't had online therapy before? Yes. So the purpose of Amal being today here offering the service is because... Uh, this service and the 42-person growing organization is to make counseling mental health affordable and accessible to the people of the UAE. When I say UAE, nationals and non-nationals, huh? they are my residents. And um, um, uh, and yes, the mission is to make it affordable, accessible. We conduct counseling sessions online mainly, and 70, 75%, again, uh, uh, you know, um, COVID made this possible mm-hmm. and introduced us to the world of uh, video conferencing and we online. We became more comfortable, yes, didn't we? Yes, yeah, yes, but uh, not entirely, you know, the positive thing, but it is what it is and it, it's working beautifully. I think there are some real positives to it, especially in such a busy city like Dubai. You know, the thought of driving somewhere, parking somewhere, taking that time out, it can be a, a very practical barrier to someone perhaps getting mental health help. The, 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 the pros to this is also about safeguarding yourself um, uh, and your confidentiality. You don't want to, you know, walk down to a center, park the car, sit in a common room with other, um, you know, clients uh, who are going through, you know, uh, hard times themselves, mm-hmm. register. It's already a tough process to go through and let alone kind of put yourself out there and be judged. Because often it takes a lot to get to the point where you're asking for help like that's a long journey in itself does that make sense well it's you're 70 percent there when you've made that contact in our hotline so in our helpline and and that's what matters tell us about the helpline so we have a 24 7 helpline uh, managed by our um, uh, first aiders uh, qualified background uh, in in, in psychology a wonderful uh, set of uh, ladies uh, who who, uh, work in and out these 24 hours to keep this running. Uh, you call in the 24-7 hot, hot, uh, helpline and then um, they, they take in your case. Um, so some cases come for inquiry. Some cases are coming who are very anxious, people who are crying, who are desperate, who've lost a loved one, had broken relationships and so on, uh, or in a verge of you know taking the wrong decision, let's put it that way. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, you know, uh, these a wonderful team of uh, uh, MCs, uh, mental crisis associates, uh, you know, calm them down, uh, make them feel highly more responsive and better by the end of the call. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, then kind of take follow up with them the next few days to kind of start setting sessions with them and conduct pre-counseling sessions to understand the root causes of this of, is, of the problem. This is amazing. I had a couple of messages going, well, one asking from Farah, is Amal open to anyone of all, or people of all ages 
for one thing. Good question. Absolutely. Everybody who is in, 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 in the UAE, it's open to all. So I welcome you. And in terms of, well, I'd like you to share the helpline number if that's okay. Um, and another question as well from Christina saying, what does affordable mean? Are you able to share some costs? I think that's a really good point, actually, because unfortunately, insurance companies listening today, um, we haven't necessarily got many health insurance companies um, offering um, mental health coverage. So affordability is a huge, huge factor. Can you tell us a little bit about how you work out that side of it, Naila? So, um, you know, this, this was something I didn't kind of map to discuss today. I think it's important. In fact, we are partnering with um, a setup called Wellex. Uh, and Wellex um, is basically an organization that works on a spectrum of uh, wellness in terms of health and psychological and physiological. Okay. And then they partner with insurance companies as well. Oh, amazing. Okay, great. So you're kind of closing that yeah. loop. So uh, just to answer the question uh, on, uh, what was the question from Farah on the, on the affordability? Yes. Of it? Yes. All right. So affordability, uh, we, we are highly affordable. Again, this is, uh, this is how we feel, but we, we like feedback and uh, our charges would range between 100 and 200 dirhams. Wow. Yes. Uh, again, um, we have uh, a quota for pro bono cases. So not everybody, not, you know, um, you know, the, the blue collar workforce cannot even afford the hundred dirhams. Mm-hmm. So we have a quota that can even help, um, you know, you know, mothers who are out of work, people who have lost their jobs, uh, blue collar um, you know, uh, that's, population. No, that's amazing. That's absolutely amazing. I've got the helpline number for you. Okay, people. <laughs> I have it too. Okay, I'll let you say. I'll let you say it. All right, then it's zero five zero nine six four five two one four. If you aren't able to get that number and you do want the Amal helpline number, and this is for people who are there to listen 24 hours a day and can refer you out to the team as well, just send me a message saying hope and I will send you the website. And on that website is the phone number for you to contact. Naila, thank you so much for your time. You're Not just today, welcome. but for the work you've been doing behind the scenes over the last couple of years to, to bring this to life and helping so many people directly and indirectly. It's an incredible accomplishment and you really are an absolute legend around Dubai. So thank you. I really do thank appreciate you, Helen. it. I'm really glad that we made this contact. Me and too. We will have another sessions chat. To come. Thank Absol- you so much. Thank you all right. for listening. Speaking to us here live in the studio, the CEO and founder of Amal Council. If you do want that emergency helpline number, as I said, 24 hours a day. And then, of course, more information on accessible, affordable counselling. Just send me the word hope. Uh, Naila Al-Masawi joining us today from Amal. Healthy Habits. On Afternoons with Helen Farmer. Talking women's health this afternoon, it is endometriosis week. This is a condition that affects almost 176 million women worldwide. However, many do not know they have it. Joining us now is Dr. Ibtasim Ali Matsud, joining us, obstetrician-gynaecologist from Dr. Suleiman Al-Habib Hospital, to take my questions and yours. And indeed, if you've got any questions that you want to get in touch with anonymously, that's absolutely fine. Um, Doctor, really, really appreciate your time. Um, And I don't want to say happy endometriosis awareness week, but I feel like it is these awareness can be incredibly useful for educating people about conditions they might be living with and as I said not even knowing about so if it's all right with you and I know this is very common parlance for you but many of us still somewhat in the dark are you able to explain exactly what endometriosis is? Hello uh, this is Dr. Abtisam Masood consultant obstetric gynecologist uh, Canadian graduate yes um, as you said uh, endometriosis is very very common and some people they might not know that they have it already. Mm-hmm. Uh, endometriosis is um, the traveling of the lining of the cavity and implanting uh, somewhere else than the endometrial cavity, like inside the abdominal cavity, uh, in the pelvic cavity, on the ovaries, uh, and in the, um, on the bowel. And during the period, they will start having severe pain, and these cells will be implanting, invading the tissue and the organ inside them and causing uh, severe pain, infertility, um, impacting really their quality of life. uh, So it's a condition, so it's cells from the lining of the uterus ending up spreading to parts of the body where it shouldn't be. And as you're talking about, you know, the pelvic area, but even in rare cases, you know, places like 
the the lungs, even even the brain, and the result as you saying that is extreme yeah. pain. Um, now, I know a number of people have had endometriosis and, and continue to struggle with it, but a big part of the frustration was how long it took to get a diagnosis. Do you know why that might be? What are the, some of the reasons that you've heard in the industry, doctor? Uh, usually the delay to um, delay of the patient that's presenting to the doctor uh, is the reason. Uh, and some of them, they use it to a very painful menstruation and uh, consider it normal for them. Mm. And uh, yeah, so that's the, because usually they think that painful menstruation is really normal and one of the natural, um, natural, um, I mean, uh, part of their natural process. It's so sad. I mean, I would say that painful periods are unfortunately common but they are not normal you know there are you know doctors such as yourself who can help whether that's with pain management or in the case of endometriosis getting to the root of that cause so in terms of signs and symptoms that women need to look out for can you give us a little rundown of, of some of the red flags so to speak so the endometriosis, uh, it uh, affects all the women in their reproductive age, starting from menarche, from the onset of the period until menopause. So that the girls in the school age, uh, they start having severe pain during their period, like unusual pain that's sometimes not even controlled by the regular analgesic medication, presenting to emergency with pain. So that's not normal. So they have to speak um, uh to seek attention and to go to the doctor and talk about it. Well, there's also kind of sim- symptoms that might not seem related to gynecological health. So things like depression, anxiety, bloating, yes. even fatigue. Are those some of the questions you'd be asking in clinic? Yeah, because of the recurrent pain, they will have some anxiety, some panic attacks, mm-hmm. still because they will be um, waiting for their period because of the pain is really, really bad. They start having these, all their psychological symptoms. Some of them, they might have uh, nausea, vomiting, uh, severe diarrhea, back pain. Um, and some of the uh, some of the patients that are married and still uh, are still trying to get pregnant, delaying the pregnancy also is one of the uh, the reasons on the infertility. One of the causes um, on the endometriosis can affect the fertility as well. So this is this condition does affect fertility. Yeah, it's definitely one of the major reasons for infertility is the endometriosis because. When it is implanting inside the ovary, uh, it will distract the ovarian tissue and the follicle and decreases the ovarian reserve, and that will uh, delay the pregnancy and also affect the tubes. So um, because of the adhesion, the implantation, mm-hmm. they will have a tubal factor and ovarian factor infertility. Now, I wanted to ask you, you know, a lot of women do get painful periods every month, but tell us about the testing that you might do in order to reach a diagnosis. Um, so the, to reach the diagnosis, the first uh, endometriosis has four stages. First stage and second stage, uh, we will diagnose them usually by history first. If they have the severe pain, uh, presenting, missing work, missing school, um, despite regular periods, uh, so that's one of the clue for endometriosis. And also, we can diagnose it with ultrasound or um, MRI. Um, sometimes, uh, with the, um, if we don't see anything with endometriosis, with the MRI or ultrasound, and we still have very, very suggestive history, mm-hmm. then laparoscopic diagnosis will be the gold standard with the tissue diagnosis and pathology. Um, we've got a number of messages we're going to try and get to. Before we go to the text line, I wanted to ask then, once you have reached that diagnosis, what is the treatment plan? You know, what, do you, what would you tend to suggest to, let's say, a young woman in her you know, 20s, 30s, um, who might be seeking to get pregnant at some point? What, what can treatment look like, doctor? So the treatment will be depending on the stage of the endometriosis. Mm. If it is first or second stage, uh, medical treatment would be an option for her. Uh, if it is third stage, fourth stage, sta- starting having ovarian cysts, endometrioma, uh, doing some um, some tests to check their tubes and it, it is blocked, then the laparoscopic surgery would be the answer for her. 
um, to remove that endometrioma and try to release all the adhesions to open her tubes um, uh, so she can get pregnant. Um, going to the text line, Sarah saying, I was wondering what kind of hormonal treatment is recommended for endometriosis after a pregnancy. So managing the condition um, after having children, any insights there? Yes, the medical treatment also uh, one of the good options if the, if the fertility is not uh, seeked at this time. Uh, so then uh, birth control will be an option. Progesterone only tablet is an option as well. Um, injections, Dibuprovera injection, uh, Mirena IUD will be uh, also one of the options, especially if they have uh, heavy bleeding. Mm-hmm. And also uh, Fizan, this is a medication specifically for endometriosis. It targets the endometrial spots and it dissolves it. And it's really effective in the treatment. Doctor, thank you so much for your time. I really, really do appreciate it. For anyone that's just tuned in, are you able to tell us um, just very quickly some of the big signs that a painful period might need further investigation by a doctor such as yourself? Okay, if the pain is really, really severe and it's not controlled with the regular uh, analgesic medication like Benadol or Brofine or uh, Voltaren, then this is not normal and you need to seek um, a medical treatment and medical help. And also taking lots of medications, a pain medication in a day, more than three or four tablets a day, so that's not normal mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. So you really need to uh, see your doctor. Well, Doctor, thank you for your time. Really do appreciate it. Uh, Dr. Iftasam Ali Masood joining us, consultant um, obstetrician-gynecologist from Dr. Suleiman Al-Habib Hospital. Uh, mocking Endometriosis Awareness Month. If you want her details, drop me a little message on 4001 saying doctor and I will send them your way. This content is for informational purposes only and does not intend to substitute professional medical advice, diagnosis or treatment. Recognising a gap in safe, quality accommodation for female residents of Dubai, one woman has started a company offering just that. Luxury co-living, former teacher turned property entrepreneur Danielle Hall from Co-Living Legends joining us now. Um, I'm so intrigued by this as a problem-solving company, Danielle. But tell us a little bit about you. You came to Dubai as a teacher and like many teachers had accommodation included. But what did you start to notice about other new arrivals in the city? Hello, good afternoon, Good Helen. afternoon. Um, so when I arrived in Dubai, we were, you know, fortunate enough to have been provided with accommodation, as, you know, many companies do and still do. Um, but equally, there are st- some sectors of, of the um, Dubai population who aren't provided accommodation um, and they have to find their own. And what I found was is that a lot of people sort of struggle with two things so Mm. one of the things is that the cost of of accommodation so even if a package includes housing or an allowance often it might not be enough or the amount or you've got to put up quite a bit up front yes it's a big big obstacle i think for a lot of people absolutely so the amount needed up front to secure the the units is often a barrier um so that's one of the things that can prevent people from finding their own accommodation um but then the other side of that were Expat life can be quite lonely, pre-marriage, pre-children, you know, a lot of expats come here just as individuals. And so even the ones that can afford to uh, secure accommodation in their own right, whether it be a one bed or a studio, some often choose to live in shared accommodation for that community feel or having people around them at all times. Mm. Now this... Where were you 16 years ago? I'll tell you what happened to me. So I, I arrived and I was given two weeks accommodation. And you know what? It was a very odd experience. Um, it was it was an apartment that was often used by like party entertainers and magicians. So I had a map to the nearest magic shop and it had a sarong held up by clothes pegs for a curtain. I would say it was in Karama and we had the best time exploring Karama and I ended up working in Karama as well. So we had a lot of like, just it was, it, but it was one of those, okay, when this two weeks is up, what next? And I'll tell you what happened next. It was me scrolling like through websites and putting myself in retrospect in some really dangerous situations, going to try and find a shared villa or shared apartment. And, th- and I, I really mean it looking back. I'm like, oh, my God, that was a bit that was sketchy. So what you're doing is really offering 
a safe alternative to this with female-only apartments where you presumably are kind of putting people together. Tell us a little bit about how it works. Yeah, so when I did a bit of research in sort of finding, you know, after finding the problem, which was, you know, accommodation, shared, there's a need for shared accommodation. People being scammed People as well. being scammed, people, uh, you know, finding themselves in, you know, sometimes situations that were not legal or mm-hmm. overcrowded situations. I had to do a bit of research and speak to a number of developers, a number of co- like commercial landlords who own buildings to approach them and say, look, this is what I want to do. How can how can I do this? How can I do this properly? How can I do this legally? One of the requirements of one of the developers that we you know, source bulk of our units from, um, stipulated that they preferred that the units were not mixed. This was going back to sort of before the the rules changed in terms of co-living, cohabiting. Mm-hmm. And I had to make a decision at that point, you know, who do I want to target at this point? And I felt that women were the ones who were most vulnerable, who had the problem, who needed to be safe, who wanted clean, comfortable accommodation. And I felt I could better service those needs because I'm a woman myself. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's what I did. So it stemmed from that, but it, it actually grew into the niche that I do now. It's my thing. I'm a girl's girl. I, you know, I really am all about empowering women and creating these communities where, you know, it's not just a, a room in an apartment now. It's more of a community that I want to help foster. So how many properties do you have now, Daniel? So we have... 13. Wow. So, um, various sizes or how do you, how do you configure it all? They're all three bedroom. Um, so we have just short of 40, 40 ladies all together. Um, and they're all three bedroom, three bathroom. Ah, Um, so that's my main thing in that everybody has to have their own bathroom. So we only put three people. We never put more than that. It's one person in each bedroom, living room, kitchen, um, and that kind of thing. But a lot of the women, they want their own bathroom. They want their own bedroom and it's, it allows them to have that space, um, and know that they're not sharing those things with other people. Especially when you first meet someone, you're like, oh, and now I know all your toilet habits. How magical. (laughs) Um, A question here from uh, Mina saying, can you pay monthly? Great question. Yes. So we do. It it is monthly. So effectively, it is short, short to medium term, I say, because Mm. people come to us with a view of sort of saying, right, you know, once I'm settled in my job, um, you know, they come from overseas often, you know, maybe you know they've had a job offer and they need to testing the water with dubai a bit testing the waters they'll say okay i'll do it we do minimum three months and that's purely for consistency we we prefer to have you know people in an apartment where they're not having people moving in and out so it's minimum three months stay and um they pay monthly of course and um must want to stay longer (laughs) because you do build those connections don't you that's inevitable what about um your relationship with the tenants because we've seen quite a lot of fractured relationships between (laughs) landlords and ladies and and tenants over the last couple of years how do you kind of navigate that yes so being a girl's girl as i said um you know often the feedback that I get from them is, oh my gosh, Danielle, thank you. I'm so happy to have found you. You are a normal person. Do you feel like you become a bit of a, you know, a bit of a surrogate mum to them? A, a bit. And I even have mums contact me. Um, I had a lady relocate from South Africa recently, a young lady, her first job, she's working in tech. Her mum flew into Dubai with her to look for accommodation. We'd been emailing prior to that and you know, they know I'm a mother too. I'm a mother of three. And she said, you know, I'm just, I feel so reassured. I bet she did. You I, know, I, I bet I, my mum would have, because <laughs> my mum was much the same, especially when I, when I decided to move out on my own. She was very much, I'd like to come and see some of these buildings, Helen. And she was, she was right to be concerned. Yes. Um, a couple of messages, a couple of questions. Um, Julie saying, fantastic idea. My daughter rented with a friend, put up a year's deposit only to discover five other people had done the same. <gasps> Perpetrator oh ended up in prison. A very upsetting time. Oh dear. And this is the thing. It's, it's, it's scamtastic. It really is. Yes. Um, Vanita's saying this sounds fantastic, but what about paperwork? A lot of people don't have Emirates IDs when they arrive. Good question. Very good question. And again, this is one of the problems that we aimed to solve, which again, being that stopgap between somebody being able to go and rent an, an apartment in their own right, they have the deposit, they have their visa and ID. We allow uh, them to approach us with 
ID, they usually need a letter from their employer just to show that they have a job. Mm -hmm. Um, And most of the time the visa is in process, so they can provide those documents as well. And last question saying, where are the apartments? Currently, we are focused in DIFC and JLT, so opposite ends of town. and and we're happy with those areas. We prefer, we prefer to be along the main metro line. A lot of our clients, they don't drive and they choose not to. They prefer to be able to jump on the metro. Um, and there are some areas where there's an oversaturation of, you know, um, rooms and things like that. So. I think you've really tapped into something fantastic. And as I said, I wish you'd been around when I first moved here. Um, for anyone who wants to find out more, and obviously rooms get released, you know, according to availability, What's the best way of getting in touch and connecting with you? So we have a website, we have social media. Um, As tech moves on and on, you know, we're also in talks with app developers and things like that. Um, We are in a lot of, or I rather, I'm in a lot of the female Facebook groups and a lot of people know me by name now and recommend, like recommendations actually been a big part of this. Mm -hmm. A lot of people have come to me through recommendation um, and so people will reach out. I often do the viewings myself. I provide the paperwork, you know, I send offer letters and everything's official. Like we don't do anything that's not, you know, transparent and above board. And what's the website? www.colivinglegends.com and if you want the information on that, just send me the word, I don't know, what should we say? Live. And I will send you the details, send you the Instagram so you can have a look. Daniel, I think, massive congratulations. I mean, from you, one more thing, yeah. from teacher to uh, property entrepreneur, what a journey. Thank you so much. And the last thing I just want to say, I think it's very fitting that this week is National International Women's it Week. Is. And wow. so just to say a big thank you, Helen, to have me on the radio show this week. Um, oh, I would just like to say know. on radio, I had to drag you on. Like, I'm not sure. I was like, no, people need to hear about this, Danielle. I've normally got people bugging me to have a, have a seat where you are. So thank I'm really so glad we, we made it happen. Danielle Hall, as I said, if you want the details of that co-living for women here in Dubai, just send me the word live and I will send you the link. A new study out of the US claims that smiling could clinch you that dream job. The study, presented by the American Association for the Advancements of Science, conference in Washington last weekend, created fake profiles on LinkedIn, the networking site, for people who were either smiling or had neutral expressions in their profile pictures. They created a mock hiring process with around 300 professionals asking to rate how hireable they thought the individuals would be for a sales manager job based on those profiles on a scale of one to seven and and the smiling candidates got better feedback. Now, a very um, low-grade and professional poll, but if you're in a position to send me a quick message, send me a smiling emoji if you're smiling in your LinkedIn profile, or just send me like a neutral or a sad face if you're not. As I said, it's not scientific. I'm just kind of curious. I am smiling in mine. Um, I don't know. Let's find out from Dr. Thiraya what it's all about. How does smiling impact our chances to be hireable? And how else can we create a great first impression? Dr. Thiraya joining us, clinical psychologist from the Human Relations Institute and Clinic. Dr. T, I'm very tempted to have a little nosy on your LinkedIn now. What's 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 happening in yours? You mean in terms of my smile? Yeah. I don't really think I have a big smile in my professional picture it's a bit strange i don't usually actually smile in many pictures i usually stick my tongue out well, yeah but i was gonna say that's because you have to be a professional you're like a very serious doctor type person right. so you, uh, well i'm supposed to be okay i'm on yours i'll tell you what you're doing like a mona lisa smile in yours so it's like closed mouth but definitely a bit of a bit of an upturn at the corners of the mouth i'm doing full cheesy radio presenter smile with a microphone in my hand so I think a lot does depend on the profession, actually. And it's interesting that this this um, mock hiring process was for a sales manager job where perhaps that personability mm. is perhaps a bit more a bit more crucial. So what do you think a smile demonstrates in this setting in particular? You know, it's interesting because smiling, I mean, other than actually making us feel good when we do smile, but having that warm smile with with actually like a true real smile, it exudes confidence. It actually instills a lot of trust in uh, with other people and it convinces people that are around you that you're approachable and, and that you're open. And these are usually desirable qualities for people, you know, and so when you're thinking of hiring an individual, 
that is going to, you know, work with others or even be a salesperson, you definitely want them to appear approachable and open. So when, when, you know, the majority of us, when we, when we see somebody smile, we usually smile back, you know, that's part mm -hmm. of what we call mirroring. And that smiling sends a signal to our brain that actually reinforces and promotes feelings of joy and pleasure. So essentially it's, it's just a great way to attract people to you. So it, for a sales role, smiling is definitely a, a, a requirement. I'm smiling right now. I'm trying to get these little, little hits of uh, feeling good that you're talking about. But I think you're right in terms of who do we want to surround ourselves with? You know, we spend an awful lot of time in the workplace and, you know, we do want to surround ourselves with people who are post, you know, hopefully going to be positive and easy to get along with and be part of a company culture. We were talking about workplace bullying yesterday and I have to say, it made me think of, what, of our topic this afternoon about creating a, a positive work culture as opposed to a toxic one. And, you know, unfortunately, workplace bullies do tend to hire other people that might perpetuate their values and the way they operate. And that wouldn't want to be a company that I'm part of. Um, what, do, what are the researchers out there, Dr. T, on appearing to be hireable? Well, you know, the the idea behind facial expression and facial appearance is really well researched and even through like fmris anytime you're observing a smiling face you're receiving a lot of stronger neuronal responses as compared to looking at a person with neutral expression mm -hmm. so when you are smiling the brain is actually releasing dopamine and you know that and we we always talk about dopamine but you know produces like a, a feelings of happiness the reward also serotonin which is a chemical that helps you deal with stress so essentially the research is showing more and more that friendly and smiling individuals are actually scoring higher when it comes to, um, you know, approachability, attractiveness uh, with colleagues as well as employers mm -hmm. than individuals who have quite neutral faces. And that's really because of something that we call the halo effect. Ooh, we're going to be exploring the halo effect in just a couple of minutes, taking your questions as well. Uh, Barb has been in touch saying, I unfortunately have one of those faces that always looks unhappy, despite actually being very happy. People often ask if I'm okay when I'm perfectly fine. And Sandeep says, the problem is that a fake smile is creepy and worse than looking grumpy. I think that speaks that point. Genuine smile. Turn on the charm. What makes someone likeable? That's what we're talking about this afternoon, whether it's in a professional or personal capacity with Dr. Therai, a clinical psychologist from the Human Relations Institute and Clinic. Dr. T, you mentioned the halo effect. Can you unpack that a little bit for us? It's Honestly, it's actually one of my favorite cognitive biases when we talk about psychology in general. So it's basically uh, a cognitive bias where a person's overall impression of another person it influences what they think about their whole character. So for instance, mm -hmm. if I like the way a person dresses, I might say, oh, this person's such a kind person. They're such a nice person. So usually physical appearance is the major part of the halo effect. So people who are considered attractive tend to be rated higher on other positive traits as well. And because smiling has been known to kind of increase socially perceived attractiveness, mm -hmm. it's actually a massive signal of being trustworthy and intelligent, and yet there is absolutely no correlation between those characteristics at all. So it's really interesting to see how the halo effect makes it so that our perceptions of one quality kind of lead to these biased judgments of all of these other qualities. And we see this with politicians, with actors, mm -hmm. with actresses, with influencers, just in general, anybody that we deem to be physically attractive, we tend to think they have all of these awesome qualities as well. So how does that then translate to the workplace, I guess, both positively and problematically? Well, essentially, if you <laughs> problematically and positively, um, the more attractive and I'm using air quotes, so the more attractive you are deemed to be in a person's perspective, the more likely you are to be considered trustworthy, the more intelligent you are. And it, this plays a significant role in job interviews. Usually individuals tend to hire people that they like. And sometimes this overrides the, you know, the fact that they lack other skills that are actually required for the job. So <laughs> uh -huh. these implicit biases um, 
actually create the the sense of they, they can actually help promote you they can get you hired they can even get you the starting salary that you want more than other people who are not deemed quote-unquote as attractive to the person's eye wow and this is even in jobs where looks are seemingly insignificant how interesting okay i want mm. to come to james's question james got in touch on 4001 saying re being likable does dr t think charisma is something that people naturally do or don't have what do you think Actually, charisma is a learned behavior. It's a set of skills. So it has nothing to do with this internal kind of existence. And usually their, you know, charismatic behavior kind of boils down to about three different factors. And that's having that sense of presence, um, power, Mm -hmm. and warmth. Mm -hmm. And so if you're able to balance these three things, you usually are associated as a charismatic person. But, I mean, I find there's nothing worse than someone who thinks they're really charismatic and is really trying hard. It gives me the, right. the mega ick. It really, really does. And I think that comes and, and across. That's actually, it's a bit of a sales thing, you know, like, oh, gross. Right, right. And I think that's where the warmth piece comes in, Helen, in the mm. sense that that fakeness, you can't fake warmth. You can probably fake power and pr- fake presence, but you can't fake warmth. So if you don't have that piece, the charismatic nature of your existence won't really come out right. So I was speaking to a group of teenage girls a couple of weeks ago and we were talking about, you know, making life plans and, you know, academics and, you know, just growing up, I guess. And as as I said it, I was like, should I say this or not? And I certainly don't want to say, you know, everyone listening, students listening, work hard at school. Of course, work hard at school. But I think being likable can take you really far in life as well. Mm-hmm. Being someone who has the ability to connect with people, to make conversation with people from all different backgrounds, be an active listener, you know, show genuine interest in people. And you can have the best grades in the world. But if you are not likable and have emotional intelligence, you might not get, get very far. And as soon as I said it, I was like, oh, no, I'm not sure that was good advice. But I do believe it to be true. <laughs> You know, unfortunately, Helen, it is true. And I say unfortunately for one reason is because we got a lot of individuals who are faking this in order to get ahead in life. And that is where it becomes an unfortunate event. When you're truly a person who cares and empathizes and and tries to have a higher emotional intelligence existence, then that's a great thing for yourself and for people that are around you. But when you're using it just as a way to get ahead in life, it's, it's something that's not only manipulative, but it's also quite detrimental to the people around you that tend to trust you and care for you. And Mm -hmm. then they're going to establish some form of halo effect of your existence rather than having, you know, maybe something a little bit more accurate of, of, of your true intentions behind it. So what other advice would you have for making a good first impression? We've kind of talked about that LinkedIn first impression, but if you're meeting someone for the first time, whether it is a job interview or a first date, have you got any firm do's and don'ts, Dr. Thryer? (laughs) One of the first things that I would say, and I think uh, maybe the newer generations need to acknowledge this, is that try to address people in the way that they also address you. So the tendency for the younger generation is that when when the older generation is kind of speaking to them, you know, they might use, um, you know, words like miss, mister, things like that. But then the younger generation, when they address the older generation, they tend to call them by their first name. And so the one thing that you really want to be careful to do is address people the same way they address you. This is extremely important because you're creating a reciprocation. Uh, Facial expressions are also extremely important. So making sure that, you know, you, even if you do have a, a face that, tends to look like you're unhappy, try your best to smile, try to maintain eye contact, but not so much where you look like you're staring at a person (laughs) being very awkward Mm -hmm. with them. Um, Body language turned towards the person rather than away from them. Our feet and our, and our actual gates could be extremely important when, when sitting in front of someone, if you're kind of shifted away from them or to the side, it might look like you're trying to exit or you're very nervous. Mm -hmm. Whereas when you're kind of almost aligned um, you know, it, it could, it could show a sense of, uh, confidence as well. Um, so, you know, <laughs> I would also say that try not to be too much of anything in first, first impression. Sometimes people get overly nervous and so they try to overcompensate my, my, my overall suggestion to individuals is just try to be yourself as much as you can. And if you're uncomfortable 
in certain situations, try to ask more questions than speak, because that might put you in a position of, of uh, at least feeling like a great listener. That's really interesting, that, that last one, because I totally, totally agree. And I say this as someone who talks for a living, but that was always my grandpa's thing, you know. God gave you two ears and one mouth for a reason. Mm-hmm. And me and my friend Charlie, whenever we used to go out and, you know, maybe meet someone for the first time, we'd, you know, have a bit of a debrief and she'd always say, like, oh, they massively failed the loser test. Like, we were talking for 45 minutes and, you know, he or she didn't ask me a single question about, mm. about myself. And that's, that's kind of what we remember about people, isn't it? It's how people make us feel. You know, that's the, mm-hmm. did I feel valued and heard and seen or was I just a vehicle for someone talking at me for 45 minutes? Right. Dr. Thryer, thank you so much for this. Um, are you planning on changing your LinkedIn profile photo anytime soon to a wider smile? Or do you feel that's reflective of you and your indeed profession and personality? Oh, actually, Helen, I'm going to be completely honest with you. I want to change it because my cheeks look super massive in that picture. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love the honesty. Thank you, my dear. I'm going to change mine because my hair's a lot darker. So do you know what? I don't actually use LinkedIn that much, to be honest. I find it to be quite a strange platform. So I probably should, but I'm not too worried about it right now because I'm not looking for a new job. Dr. Thryer, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for your time. Really, really Hi, interesting Helen, chat you. as ever. Dr. Thryer, clinical psychologist from the Human Relations Institute and Clinic. And going back to my totally non-scientific poll, it was about two-thirds smiley to a third neutral on your LinkedIn profile photos. But if you are looking for a job you might want to make it a smiley one because apparently it does boost your employability. And thank you for downloading this episode of the Afternoons with Helen Farmer podcast. Don't forget, you can subscribe. You'll get it direct to your phone as soon as it's out. And you can listen to me live on Dubai Eye 103.8, Monday to Friday between 2 and 5 p.m. You've been listening to a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. To enjoy lots more from Dubai Eye in the United Arab Emirates, just go to DubaiEye1038.com or find them wherever you normally get your podcasts.